wanted to say um, just before we start, just to give you a bit of context to what East London Connect is, who I am, and the purpose of the conversations that we're having this evening. I just want to give you like a brief in, um, overview. So my name is Richard Akerele, and I'm the founder of an organization called East London Connect. And we exist to help young people and people who are later on in their career fulfill their full educational and career potential. So that's what we do as an organization. And this evening is essentially a, one of our first in a series called Teaching at the Top Black Men in Academia. And the idea around this theme and what we're talking about today and why we've got Alex on the show today is, as you're all probably aware, there is a um, narrative around black men and academia, black and female. And what we want to do is challenge that narrative. So we're going to be interviewing um, individuals such as um, such as Alex to kind of see his journey and see that actually we there are different ways into academia and there's a different journey into academia but how can we learn from his experiences and how can we cham champion this for other young people or even people from who are already have a career but potentially playing with the idea of academia uh, is everyone um, okay with that so, oh, and also the, the other thing that I wanted to say is, so the format for today is it will be a conversation between me and Alex for the first uh, 30 minutes or so, or 20 to 30 minutes, just talking through his journey and how he um, got into academia, um, was, he, was it something that he really wanted to do, and we'll just go through his journey, but then I, towards, the, towards the end, I will have um, 20 minutes or so for question, 20 to 25 minutes for questioning, if anyone has specific questions about Alex's research, some of his work, or some of the things we mentioned, or, or, or if you have any questions around PhD or postgraduate education. Does that sound good, everyone? Yes, I hope so. <laughs> uh, okay. All right, Alex, thank you so much for joining us. Now you're welcome, Richard. So can you tell us your full current title? I think I, I butchered it a little bit. No, I'm not keen on titles. Okay. Um, yeah, just a associate professor in project management and quantity surveying, which is my, where my background lies, yeah. Okay, and I just wanted to ask for everyone in the background, you know, um, when you were younger in, um, in school, in secondary school, what, did you kind of, were you in year 10 or what, did you always think that you wanted to be in academia? Not at all, to be honest with you. Um, I think most of my career journey kind of, uh, I don't want to say by chance, but it wasn't planned. I think um, most people today or youth today are more structured in terms of their career. So you meet a 10-year-old, 11-year-old with aspiration. I think our time or maybe the environment I was, there wasn't that kind of well-structured plan that I want to be here, I want to be there. Um, I kind of accidentally ended up where I am, but I've never regretted, especially pursuing a career in in construction and especially in technology, vocational and technology education. Um, if you look back in, because of our background as Africans and the way we all perceive that if you're academically good, go and do law or medicine. And if you're academically weak, then you go and do maybe vocational and technical. So yeah, and that's how it ended up. But I'm very grateful that I took a career path in technology and especially in construction. So, so when you were in secondary school, you didn't say to your parents or to anyone that you wanted to be in construction. It was just, 
I think at the secondary level, which is a later part of my um, education, mm-hmm. I was I, I started doing technical. I went to vocational and technical education. So technical secondary school, that's where um, I ended up. But even ending up at technical secondary wasn't a choice. And like I was saying back home, if at um, high school, like, you know, GCSE level, if you've got a good GCSE grade, we expect you to go to secondary and do A level in maths and stuff like that. So me going to a technical secondary school wasn't an option and I never liked it to be honest with you. So it was like, you know, parent, that's the option, go and do technical. And I'll, you know, why should I go and do technical? Technical is for the down. You know, that was the cultural perception. But that's very, very wrong. Vocational and technical education, engineering should be we should encourage people who are brilliant to go there. It's not for people who are down. Okay, brilliant. And um so how so how did you go from so when you did your secondary school, did you then now go and do your undergraduate in Ghana or did you come to the UK? I never went to university in Ghana. And okay. that's, that's sometimes when you meet people and say you did your bachelor's in the UK, they think maybe you are rich and how do you manage to do that? So because I never had the chance to do my bachelor's or do my first degree in Ghana, it was my aspiration when I traveled that I have to make it up. You know, you know, I have all my classmates and colleagues who have then went to university, did their first degree. So for me, I never even had my first degree as early as most people, my kid brothers and sisters are having the opportunity at 2022, they finished their first degree now. Um, so I didn't do first degree in Ghana. I did my first degree here um, in the UK and at a later stage of my life, which I should put it. So I was almost 29 when I did my first degree. Here. Yeah, so I think that's quite a good um, juncture to kind of go into that a bit more. So can you tell us what you actually did and the work you did in construction um, before you even started to go into your first degree? All right, so because um, the entry requirement to university um, at that time, you know, like if you had the secondary certificate from Ghana, you couldn't get into university straight. Mm -hmm. So I had to do HNC at college. I went to College of Northeast London to did, um, I did HNC in building studies. And because I went to technical secondary, at least I've done a bit of basic technical yeah. construction stuff, basic stuff. So I was able to, I think Tottenham, you may have known College of Northeast London in Tottenham. Uh, yeah, so that's where I started the whole journey. And I did my HNC there. And- um, so, I, so, for, so for those of you who don't know what the HNC is, it's, can you, can you explain it? Because I think nowadays it's not, they don't really use it that much. HNC higher national certificate. Yeah, exactly. So, and you did that at college. Yeah, at um, College of North East London, Cornell. I don't know what they call it now. I think they've now merged um, it to different merged with um, Enfield College and other bit. Yeah, but at that time, it was in Seven Sisters, Seven Sisters, and College of North East London was then around almost twenty years ago. Okay, That's so so love. so what happened? So you so you did your so you were at college. And were you kind of like, I've come all the way from Ghana, I'm in, I have qualifications and you're now doing a HNC, not even a first degree. So no, I, I, because my qualification from the senior secondary school didn't get me to university. And um, the easiest way was to get a qualification from UK and start from there. Okay. So I was lucky. I still remember the name. Um, there was this um, professor at um, Cornell. Then it was called Cornell. She was a black lady as well, Drusilla Coles. I still remember the name very well. I don't know where she is now. And she was very, very supportive and encouraging. I think I was the only black in our class then. 
So because career in construction was, was more of um, people who have already done apprenticeship, they are already working in the industry. Um, some of them had at that time had had maybe 10 to 15 years experience. Maybe they were just around you know, mid um, 30s, but because they started apprenticeship, apprenticeship at age 15, 14, and they've been in site management, carpentry, mm -hmm. they've got years of experience behind them, but what they didn't have was the qualification. Mm -hmm. So in terms of qualification, even in construction, it's the recent times that people are having PhDs and masters and stuff. 20 years ago, you see people with 10 years experience and I work in industry with people um, as commercial directors having only HNC, like I, I started from. Can, can, can you say that again? So senior directors uh, in construction who are on a very good salary with yeah. only what? HNC, National yeah. Certificate. Yeah. The highest could be diploma. Degree wasn't there. Okay. So okay. when I went to Cornell, then College of Northeast London, in a class of, don't remember, it was a small class of around 20. I was the only black and I think I, at that time I was the youngest with no experience. Okay. Because all the other guys are site managers, they are project managers working on site. All that they needed was just HSC certificate because they are Typically, people who maybe went through did NVQ. Okay, yeah. Mm. What they needed was HNC to be able to progress in their so, career. Yeah. So that's how it was at, at that time that even going to the HNC, uh, it was like you don't have experience because you need to have some industry experience. So that's okay. how it all started after my HNC. And, and that, that's you know the industry. I was able to get a job after HNC. Okay. Yeah. And so do you want to tell us about a little bit about that journey? Because you qualified to walk to um, Quantity Surveying, didn't you? Yeah. So I did one year HNC. So after one year HNC, I got a job as a trainee Quantity Surveyor with mm -hmm. a, a company in Northeast London. I think they are still working. It was called an Irish company called McDermott Brothers. They are doing concrete works. I think they were involved in a lot of the Olympics in Stratford. Okay. They've got different divisions. I don't want to go into the technicals about what they do, but they offer me the first opportunity as a trainee quantity surveyor. And I always still owe a lot of gratitude to these guys because I have little experience as a trainee, though I didn't, the pay was rubbish. All that they were paying me was transport to keep me moving. But mm. at that time, I realized that to be able to move into the career, I need the experience. So mm -hmm. now whenever I'm talking to my students, I talk them to them about internship and placement. If you don't have the experience in the industry, especially construction, qualification wasn't what they needed. What they needed was experience. So with no experience, these guys took me on. And typically when I go to work, I was repeating works they've already done. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the contract that they've already won and they are working on, they'll give it to you and say, can you measure it? So, you, you know, when we talk about measuring, it's just like quantifying the work they are, they've done. So if it's bricks and mortar, construction is about bricks and mortar. So the, the works of a quantity surveyor is to calculate all the quantities of materials, labor, and plant. So if they are working on a contract, they've already won. They'll give me the drawings that has been designed by the architect. And I'll spend my whole day trying to work out the number of bricks, the quantity of wow. uh, and everything all day. And I was still getting paid for that. Though I was paid minimum or just travel and a bit of allowance, but I needed that money. Experience. That experience, mm -hmm. more importantly. 
And like I keep saying, these guys were not tired of the fact that they didn't have anything. So I spent six months in the office doing bits and pieces like that over the first few months. And uh, I think I could pick on and start measuring jobs for them. Mm-hmm. So that's where I started. Then six months after working in the office, I moved on to site to gain the on-site experience. So Canary Wharf, I always go to Canary Wharf and I look at the buildings and I say, I started here. It yeah. was like, you know, brownfield, nothing there with marshy areas. You know, they would have to regenerate Canary Wharf then. So th- I'm talking about 2001. Oh, wow. So, so, they, so before, I, before, before what, what it was, yeah, yeah. So we built, our company did a lot of the works at Canary Wharf. There was nothing there. You know, when I go to the waitress, when they built up the marine deck, the basement, everything I was part of it. We did most of the, when we talk about our RC frames, reinforced concrete works at every building, the HFC tall building, we did all the grants works and the RC frame construction. So that's where I gained all my experience. So I worked with the company for almost um, three years. Okay, three years. And then, and then you didn't, after those three years, you went from a trainee to then cert, uh, qualified chartered? The, the funny part is at that time, and I know it's still, you know, there's always skill shortage in construction. And that's why I took an interest in even, apart from this conversation, I've been involved in talking to people who haven't got a clue about their career opportunities in construction. Because a lot of people get choked into businesses and banking and you know, the money in banking is the, the, the classic. <laughs> the classic. But they forget yeah. that there's a lot of career opportunities there. And at that time, um, a recruitment consultant will take you to a company. A year down the line, they'll call you, do you want to move? <laughs> I've got a better pay for you. That's mm-hmm. how it was. Okay. If you're not careful, you could even move from a company every other year. Oh, wow. So after that, whilst I was working there, I started my degree on a part-time. So one year, HNC at um, College of Northeast London, Mm-hmm. Then whilst working, I started my part-time on a degree. So I'll, because you have HNC, you do a degree on part-time for three years instead of four mm-hmm. years. Yep. So I did four year, uh, three-year part-time degree. Mm-hmm. Then I moved on from that company to work with uh, Wilmot Dixon, which is a known, uh, I think, yeah, one of the largest, one yes. of the largest in construction. Exactly. So I moved to Wilmot Dixon to work with them as well. And like some saying at that time, you could move from a company every other year because it was the opportunity for quicker career progression. Mm-hmm. As soon as you work, you've got two years in the company, either somebody is going to offer you higher salary to move or something like that. So I did three years whilst working. Um, I worked with another company, um, which was Hamos Contractors, before doing a master's on a part-time as well. Okay. So, and, and so at this time... At this, sorry, sorry to um, interrupt, but at this time, were you thinking about professorship? Were you thinking about teaching or were you just uh, enjoying your career? I was enjoying my career. To be honest with you, the years in construction were the best years of my career. Um, I did enjoy it so much. I think, you know, the learning curve was there. If you go to site, there was being in a career in construction, you get a mix of office days and site days. So mm-hmm. You don't get bored sitting in the office and you don't get bored in the cold in the in the side. So two, three days in the office, you go to side, you kind of run your own show. Okay. Nobody tells you when to close from work. 
if I want to plan my day two, maybe two, three days in the office, the remaining other two, three days on site, when I go to site, just work with the site guys, get the invoices, deliveries, because I have to do the cost. Okay. I spend a few hours there and I'm out of the site and I'm coming home. So I always do half day when I'm on site. Okay. So I did enjoy, there wasn't any plan into going to academia. Academia came later after I finished my master's. And if you remember 2007, 2008 credit crunch. Mm -hmm. So during the credit crunch, the economy typically went down. Industry construction is driven by client demand. Yep. So there was the crash, economy is down. Um, at that time, I wasn't working for a company called McDermott, no, no, Hay Mills Contractors, rather. Okay. And Hay Mills was bought by Vinci. If you heard of Vinci, it's one of the European top uh, construction. They are also based in the UK. So Hay Mills Contractors went into administration and Vinci bought Hamels for a pound. And wow. that's when I took um, time off um, to go to Ghana and did a few, a few months there doing bits and pieces. And I came back and because at that time, like I said, the industry was a bit down, I had the opportunity to do a PhD. So that's so, when- so, so what do you mean by, so you, so you, did, your, so you did your masters. And yeah. so for a lot of people who want to do a PhD or go into academia, um, you know, they kind of do their undergraduate, they do their masters, and as part of their masters, they're already thinking about maybe a PhD, uh, a position. So, would, so was that kind? Of, so you said that wasn't what you were thinking about when you started your PhD. When I was doing my masters, there wasn't a plan, but because after <laughs> the masters, then there was this credit crunch coming in. That was the when I started to look for other opportunities. And during the masters, I had a good relationship with some of my supervisors. So I did um, a dissertation on something I was very passionate about on sustainability. So there was that. Which you're uh, still researching. <laughs> so that buzzword was, you know, very, um, um, was happening at that time. That was the buzzword of the day, sustainability. So after the masters and there was that opportunity for to do something else, that's when I started looking for um, PhD opportunities and I was lucky to have a scholarship at that time and I guess so even then when you did your PhD when you kind of had this opportunity to do a PhD and to get funding which is also quite um, difficult and competitive so I guess maybe there'll be questions at the end around you know how to navigate that and we've had conversations around that but I was wondering even then was that was there an aspiration to be a professor I won't say because even when I was even in the uh, as a senior lecturer, I had colleagues in the office who asked me, "Do you want to be in a pro uh, professor?" And I was like, "I'm working. It will come. It's it's a career steps. It's a ladder in academia. You have to move from a lecturer, senior lecturer, associate professor. So, you you know, when you start as maybe a postdoc, because at the when I was doing my postdoc, I wasn't thinking about professorship. It was just like keep on working. So you did, your, you, you, you did your three years. Yeah. And then I did a year and a half postdoc at Cambridge after. Yeah, exactly. So, so you did your, um, you did, so you did your three years um, a PhD and then you did your postdoc at Cambridge. Yeah. And this is incredible. So you've gone from HNC HN and then you've gone from part-time undergraduate yeah. and you've gone from part-time working as well in your master's. The first opportunity you get, which is your PhD to, to kind of work and focus full time on that, you yeah. take that opportunity. Yeah. And then 
after that you're after that you you do a postdoc at Cambridge. Yeah. So you've gone from North London to Cambridge. college to Cambridge. <laughs> from Cornell to Cambridge. To Cambridge. So but what's really interesting is can you um explain to people that decision not to continue as a postdoc at Cambridge? Um I mean, there's always opportunity to be a postdoc at Cambridge. Cambridge have got over 5,000 postdocs. And because of their reputation, they're always winning all their funding projects you know, across the world and in the UK. So there's yeah, always exactly. get to move from one project to another. But after a year and a half and realized that, and also I met a few, one or two you know, other black colleagues who has been there for ages. And I realized that yes, you, if you're not careful, you get stuck here and working for other professors as a postdoc. And people like the reputation of being at Cambridge. But I realized that if you want to be an independent academic, you need to go into a full um, lectureship position. If you're a postdoc, you are concentrated on more on research only. Mm-hmm. But if you're a lecturer, you do both teaching and research and it helps you to become an independent and you'll get people also working under you. So I felt that I need to become, to become an independent, independent researcher rather and the best route was to go through the lectureship, lectureship, which is a combination of lecturing and research, rather than just pure research route. Fantastic. And so when you when you made this transition from postdoc, so this position, which was you know guaranteed basically to always be renewed, to go into lectureship, you started off, for after your postdoc, you started off as a senior lecturer. Can you explain how that was possible? Um, I think because I've had years of experience in the industry and because of the path I took, once again, if somebody, another colleague in a different field like, like business or psychology may have a different pathway. Um, when it comes to construction related career, experience is key. So um, universities are looking for people who have got industry experience. So I think for me, most of my um, journey has been because I went through the industry. Because um, at that time, when we had our scholarship at Salford, I think we were about 20 in that cohort. And I was one of the few who were able to finish and secure a postdoc and associate and uh, senior lecturer within the shortest possible time. When some of my cohort were still working as um, teaching assistants. Yeah. So. so- so we won't mention the guy who 10 years afterwards, we won't mention him for now. <laughs> so, so, so I think, so, so I think um, one of the key things I think me and um, Alex were talking about um, uh, uh, at a different point was um, if you want to become a senior lecturer after your postdoc or after your PhD, you have to be strategic. And, and the, the benefit that Alex had was his experience in the industry, but also being very, um, yeah, very strategic in, taking on teaching opportunities whilst you're doing your PhD. Exactly. Yeah, so that you had three years of teaching experience before you, as soon as you finish. So I think it's also about kind of planning along the journey. So I think think you've nailed it there. So, I mean, let me pick a few things there is that the planning is key and getting the right experience because I had three years of um, graduate teaching assistantship during the PhD time. So whilst I was doing the PhD, I was teaching you do a few bit of teaching, they don't overload you with teaching, but you mark, you teach. So even I was teaching a master's class whilst I was doing my PhD. So you got a few experiences on your CV. You had the industry experience on your CV. 
Then the postdoc experience from Cambridge, there too, you are offered to do a, a few bit of teaching whilst you're doing your postdoc. So all these experiences, and it's important, even if you're doing an undergraduate you know, degree, I always tell my students that take advantage of internship and placement. Even if you do Freeman placement during the summer, that is super. You get three months every year or in between the summer, even if it's two months or even a month experience after your first year, another a month or two after your second year. By the time you finish, you've got almost nine months of experience or six months of experience. And every employer is happy to take you on because you know what it's like in the real world of work. Exactly. And I, th I think that's fantastic. So, so you're now a senior lecturer, <laughs> one of few from your cohort as a senior lecturer. Um, how do you, how do you become, how do you go from senior lecturer to now director of studies? Yeah, I think, um, how do I explain that? Straight <laughs> away at South Bank, you know, I, I had, I was a senior lecturer at South Bank. And once again, because I had this industry experience, um, I'm a chartered quantity surveyor and they like people with an industry experience because that, they may be different if you are working in, in a business or psychology environment, but in construction, all the guys coming into degree, especially a university like South Bank, at that time, I'm not sure about today, but I think it's the same. You have about 70, 30 or 80, 20 ratio in terms of full-time and part-time. All the guys coming for their degree are people who are already working in industry. So they want somebody who is standing in front of them with industry experience. If you don't have industry experience, you know, you, you won't even be confident enough because the guys you are talking to are doing the job. They, are, they do it every day before even they come to the class in the evening or in during the day or they call a day off to do on a Wednesday or whatever. They've spent the last two days on site, on their offices. So they want somebody who is more confident, who have, can, the student can relate to. Yeah. So yeah. that straight away, they gave me director of uh, their master's program, their quantity survey program. I was the director of the program because of my experience in the industry. And it did help me because whenever, you know, induction days, I go and do the inductions. We got a cohort of like 70 with so many of them working already in the industry. And when you talk about Uma Dixon, they know it. Or some of yeah. the students are already working there. When you're talking about, you know, Canary Wharf project, you got people working there. Yeah. So they relate to you proper. They have confidence in the, you know, the person who is leading the program. And I think you know, the university or the department saw that in me that I could be the director of the program from there. And oh, Alex, I think you've muted. Alex, I think you've just muted yeah. yourself. Yeah, go on, sorry. So based on that experience of managing uh, programs at South Bank over three years, when I went to UCL, straight away at the interview, they told me that we want you to be director of our program. So from day one, the first day I was running a program. Wow. Anyway, it's got its disadvantages because you tend to, uh, go, go into more of management route, which sometimes could go against you. you will research. If you're, if you're yeah. a person of color, you will go into details of that. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe there'll be questions afterwards, but um, one of the interesting things that I want us to um, maybe um, hone in on and kind of maybe yeah. finish on briefly is, so you've gone from a North London college with just seven, GCSE. Seven from, sisters. For seven sisters and with just, uh, with just your GCSEs that one wasn't accepted in the UK and then you had the work experience and now you are director of study, uh, director of your program at UCL. Yeah, and, I and then 
and then and then you become also an associate professor so one of the really exciting things i'd like you to tell people about is your program that was approved last year oh. to help people along this journey um there was our dean at that time i think read some news item in the guardian about um uh, i think university, university college of um, london university of beckett what is that called again um Berbeck. Berbeck, yeah, London. Berbeck, London University of Berbeck. They were running some program for forced migrant. So I think he read some excerpt about it in the Guardian. And he came back to me and said, oh, that's what I saw in the news. And um, I think um, it would be something interesting because, you know, UCL is known for its um, lack of diversity. Yeah. So sometimes <laughs> we try to say, okay, if we, Alice, you are here. <laughs> you might as well. You'll be the face of that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I felt yeah. that was also opportunity to um, diversify our cohort, and mm -hmm. whenever I was involved in recruitment, you know, I tried to make sure that if people are qualified, people of color are qualified, they are given the opportunity. So he had a conversation with me about this, and that's what, how it all started. So I had I, I sent an email to the person that was a name in the on the Guardian website. So I contacted the person. They said, "Oh yeah, this is what we are doing." So that's what it was started. So I worked with them, developed a program for forced migrant, and it has to go through all the quality control and everything within UCL. Finally yeah. got approved, and there's now funding for it for um, the university will be recruiting a number of students from BME background uh, who are forced migrant um, status. You know, sometimes people who are forced migrant having got um, access to university loans and all that. So they'll be fully funded program to be able to uh, pursue a course at our faculty, especially uh, at UCL. So any program in architecture, engineering, construction, planning, uh, I think there are about five courses that I have to map all these courses entry requirements. So um, what, we, what we mean by a uh, strict cohort is that if you are a normal, normal in quote applicant, you can't come and use this shortcut to get into UCL. It's mm -hmm. for people who are only forced migrant, uh, people who are, what's the right word? Um, the immigration status, uh, refugee status and stuff like that, yeah, yeah, yeah. who are able to use that route because sometimes maybe somebody came from Syria or any other Iraq and they've done their A-levels, but because of the war, they don't have any certificates. So yep, yep. one year kind of foundation program will help them to be able to straight move into a degree program without bringing out their A-levels or whatever. And do you think your experience those years ago helps you to uh, affiliate, to understand them, and but also to communicate effectively, you know, the journey of access to, access to learning and, and getting on the route to university? Definitely. I mean, I always say this wherever I am, whether it's in the classroom, that my past always influenced even my teaching. Whenever I'm in the classroom, my sight experience, because when you start on site, I remember my first day on site, I was given a nice fresh boots. And once you go to site, everybody will see you because all the guys have got their dirty boots and you go in fresh, new, no, you know, dirt on it. They know you are just came on site. You'll be doing all the tea. <laughs> so, and a typical construction site at that time was kind of cultural shock. It's all about swearing. So I have to, it took me time, one, to get used to the system and realize that this is how it is. It's no offense. It's about swearing at the guys to get a job done. 
Okay. So culture. I was two nines. And sometimes my commercial advertising allies, if you don't swear, the guys will take will take you serious. They have to learn <laughs> they have to swear. Yeah. And when I came into academia, then I started to struggling to move away from <laughs> that kind of language. All the F words on site. So one final question, I know we've talked about it before, but one final question for me, and then I guess I will open up to the, everyone listening. Um, when you reflect on your journey from Ghana, not even thinking about professorship at all, to now being a professor and now being able to open up doors for so many other people, how do you think, um, or what are the big lessons that you learn from your faith because I think we've talked about how you just reflect on you just like, you know. Um, to be honest with you, um, sometimes we say luck, but um, maybe I'll call it God's favor comes in, 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 in my journey and in everybody's journey, no matter hard work, uh, how hard you work, because there's somebody else working harder than you. Hmm. you so can you say that I'm, again? <laughs> <laughs> saying that no matter how hard you are working, someone else is working harder than you. So sometimes doors open and you know it's just God's favor. Mm-hmm. And they start mm-hmm. off from even at Cornell, um, meeting Drusilla Cole that I still remember, you know, 19 years ago, was God's making. Mm. She opened that door for me. Mm. Going to work with McDemo Brothers, the two guys I met, the, the one commercial director, Peter Melbourne, I still connect with him on LinkedIn, was like God sent. Because if it was any other person, they could have just sacked me the next day. Because mm. I didn't have a clue about the industry. Mm. But this guy had faith in me, gave me the opportunity. And within six months, I was you know, running projects as a project uh, quant surveyor on Canary Wharf. Um, it, it, it moved from there. So in life, it's just, whilst you work hard, you need God's favor. Then you need people who, you know, it's God's favor that will provide these open doors or opportunities. And especially when it comes about people of color, sometimes people doubt our ability. And mm-hmm. all that you need is that little chance to prove yourself. Because when you get that chance, I know you can deliver. But the first opportunity is getting your first foot on the door. So awesome. for me, that has been um, how I'll put it over the years. Even getting my um, PhD scholarship was like another one of those. Can you can you can you break it down for us <laughs> so that we can because I think I think you know statistically it's less than five percent of BME people who get who get who get who do PhDs first of all. Then it's three percent who actually get full funding. So you get a lot of BME people who are self-funding at a PhD level, which is, as you know, detrimental to their grade. So I think it's it's really important to encourage people that God can make a way. So over to you. For me, that has been God making ways every time. Because at that time, I've moved to, I'm talking about 2008, after the credit crunch, I moved to Ghana briefly. So even when... I had my interview. I wasn't in the country. I was in Ghana then, <laughs> in, in around 2008. And for the person even to have interview over the phone and still picked you, it's not like face-to-face interview, it was phone interview. And they still offered me the scholarship. and Fully funded. Fully funded. For three years. For three years. Like you get three and a half years, uh, fully funded. 
um, um, a cohort of about I say 20 plus. Again, I was the only black out of that. <laughs> um, a lot of. And in Salford, that's uh, North. Oh, that's Manchester, North, yeah. yeah. Manchester. <laughs> and a lot of my colleagues dropped out. I remember the first person dropped out because he felt the bursary wasn't enough for him and his family. Uh, I think the wife lost a job, so he stopped the PhD, even with funding. I said, you know what, this funding is not enough for me. I need to look after my family. Mm-hmm. I think there were a few people who dropped out along the journey, even with funding. Mm. And I think not trying to kind of praise myself, but I was one of the few who finished on time and early. And early? Yeah. Finished up early. Yeah, I started on, you know, September, October 2009. By 2012, exactly October, November, I was done. Well, that's just the grace of God because, you know, you get a lot of people in the final year, the writing up period is... So in the final year of your PhD, you have a final year to write. Well, you have your... You have time to kind of do up your write-up, but that is, you're basically trying to summarize the things that you've done for two years. For me, I always tell people that there's more life after PAD. So my aim was that I'm not going to waste a a day more than necessary. So whilst the funding was about to wrap up, you know, finish in the three years, my aim was to finish on time. Uh, So I put all my effort in at that time that, Mm I need to finish this and look at the next um, point of career I'll, I'll go for. So, yeah, again, yeah, I put in all my effort there, um, finished my PhD. At that, um, yeah, I think I was over so many years. I hate to say this, but within the faculty or school, according to them, for some years before me, nobody have passed their PhD without correction. So I passed my PhD without correction. So without correction, we the survivor. Yeah. So what that means is that when I submitted my PhD after the viva, it was like so that's it. that's it. And that's how you got your postdoc straight away yeah, from away. that PhD straight from at Cambridge. Away at Cambridge. Yeah. So so I just yeah I think I think it's just the grace of God as well, and I think it's also I think also sometimes in these kind of situations it's very easy to kind of to doubt yourself or to say, oh, where would the ability come or how can I do it? But I think you're a testament to say that, you know what, from no qualifications, God equips you at the right time. God equips you at the right time and gives you the knowledge and the wisdom. You didn't know you were the first one. You didn't even know it was no correction, but God made you an example. Exactly. Yeah, right. So on that note, I just want to thank Alex for sharing his journey with us. I don't know about you, but I've been truly inspired and I'm grateful for him making time this evening. Um, I just wanted to open it up for questions, if anyone has any questions. So if you unmute your mic, um, uh, Alex, are you happy to take uh, a few questions? Definitely, definitely. Perfect. Any questions from, from, from the group? Anyone? Okay. Okay, I will start. <laughs> if anybody, I'll start. So another question, another question that I had is, um, how did you ex- maybe explain how you maximize the money that you had during your PhD? So you said that you did things that were beyond the scope of your PhD, but you were able to find funding. Um, I mean, the money will never be enough 
to be honest with you, I, I mean, I think that's how you were paid. You get about four grand every quarter or so. So the PhD, the studentship was around 15,000 or whatever. So um, if you've got family responsibilities, it may be difficult to spend. When you get four grand, it looks like huge money, but you, have, you won't get another one for maybe God knows mm-hmm. three or four months time. So you need to manage that. They were funding uh, for conferences and sometimes it, maybe the department will give you 500 power for a conference. And if the conference is outside um, UK, uh, and I took opportunity to travel during my PhD a lot. So yeah, Brazil, you add, China. <laughs> you have to add your own money to what the university will allow. So if it's 500 pounds per conference, that's the, um, that you add. So I managed my financing very well. Um, but it's, it's different. It, it depends on individual situation. Somebody may have a family and other people, so it will be different telling about how they manage their finances. But what you need to bear in mind is um, it's not that enough, but at least if you've got your fee paid for and you, you're giving a bit bursary, um, I think living up north at that time was good because I remember I could rent even a two-bedroom house with a garden for 400 or 450 pounds. Which couldn't well, rent. You can't yeah, rent we, we, London. Yeah, no, that's not possible. Yeah, exactly. But so forth, you know, two bedroom house with garden was like four hundred. Yeah. Brilliant. So we've just had a question uh, in the in the chat, and it says, "What was your biggest challenge on your journey?" To be honest, to the biggest has been in recent times. Like I said, when I was in the industry, I felt part of the team. Not a single day, I was always respected, whether I was on site but I was working in the office. There were cases that in one instant when my managing director had a heart attack and I have to fit into his shoe straight away as managing an office with other admin staff. And there was that respect, you know, basic stuff that you you take it for granted. Like even when in the morning you get to the office and the ladies will bring all the letters and the mails for you to sign them off and nobody felt you know, you are young and black. No, they respected you. So my days in the industry was super. But in academia, they have time. So you get a bit of race issues there. And that has been the challenge. Sometimes you know that genuinely, why are people taking such and such decision? So that has been a bit of a challenge for me when it comes to issue with race in academia, uh, which wasn't like that in the industry. I was, you know, people were spread that maybe the construction industry should be where there's more racism on site. But for me, I had a good time on site in the office and whenever you're there, people will respect you for what you do as long as you're good at it. But in academia, sometimes you know it has to be you, but you know but, what uh, I mean? Yes, yeah. yes. So that's been a, a huge challenge. It can, it can be a bit political. Yeah, um, political, very, very political in, in, in academia. Does anyone have... Um... Does anyone have any other questions? Um, you can unmute it. We've just had a question answered. So does anyone have any other questions? Oh, so someone has, okay. So someone has a question. Can you say how you managed to get so much work and internship? Oh, and there's an, yeah, so, that, yeah, so that's one question. Um, and then another question is, uh, what, was your, what was your motivation to keep going? Yeah, I think um, just reading that from Pamela, um, talking about taking the, not the usual route and all that, in terms of that, my motivation was where I was coming from. Mm. 
So I think reading the background from Pamela kind of get exactly what she meant is that when I was in UK and over this journey, my motivation was, I, I, even in Ghana, I went to a school in a village. So high school, I didn't go to one of the elite schools in Accra or Kumar. Yeah, yeah. And there was days that even my own classmate didn't want to talk to me because I'm, I'm not part of the elite guys. <laughs> they, want, yeah. they meet you, they don't even know you. Yeah, yeah. Because if all of them are in the top tier secondary schools, I was in the technical school. Technical mm-hmm. school is, is a non-starter. Mm-hmm. But I knew that I wasn't at technical school because I was dumb or I failed. But the environment pushed me to technical. But mm-hmm. like I say, come back to the God thing or the, you know, what God planned for everybody that I was thinking, sometimes I ask myself, if I had gone to this top tier, went to do law or science, would I have been a qualified lawyer by now or a medical doctor by, I don't know, I'm just asking myself. Mm-hmm. But taking the technical route, fast-tracked a lot of my uh, career progression and all the opportunities I had in UK, I don't think if I was maybe in a different um, field, I would have had that easy. So always I was looking back to these challenges I had back home, going to primary school, secondary, and when I had the opportunity, I gave it all out that, you know what? And that's one thing from Pamela saying about when I meet sometimes people complaining at that time about little things, People were born in the UK when I was in college. You know, you meet first year university students and they are complaining about little things. I say, you know, you don't have a problem. <laughs> no, third one. That's a problem. The rare ones in Africa. So all these things motivated me and I kind of ignore most of the challenges that were coming. My head was like, you know, this is, this problem compared with what I've seen before, that's a second to nine. It doesn't come at all. It's, it doesn't count at all. Yeah. So that motivated me a lot. Uh-huh. And we talked so, about the internship. How can you manage? How did you manage to get so much work and internship? Uh, that question is not too clear. I did most of my stuff on the part time, if that's what um, she means. Yeah. Yeah. So you lose a bit, to be honest with you, because I was studying on part time, I have to pay all my fee on my own. Let me, let me, yeah. So I was paying fee on my own. Um, so I have to work and study. So sometimes you lose the atmosphere of a typical student who is on a student loan and enjoying. No, I never had that. So because I was working, I have to go to work, get a day off to do my degree. But when oh, I was wow. in my HNC, I have to fund it myself. So I do it in the evenings and I go to work in the morning or a day off in between. So that was the challenge as well. You, you don't have a life at that time yeah so so one question another question's come in in terms of numeration just so that i can go back to my home country sooner the academia and industry which sector pays more (laughs) that's straightforward industry pays more depending on the sector i can't talk about other sectors but when it comes to construction sector and currently i mean you can google it for yourself if you're a senior quantity surveyor and chartered like i am you could be earning 70 to 90k in London. If you are out of London, 65, 70k. So it pays more. And as far back as, um, let's say, 2008, before I left the industry, at least that time was kind of almost 40k plus. But when I finished the PhD 
and started a postdoc. I think I started a postdoc on Tet something. Mm-hmm. So you could imagine dropping, if you drop a salary to even to start in academia. Mm-hmm. So, but I think I think we talked about that briefly. But you, I think you said now the the independence, the research, the opportunity to influence, you potentially wouldn't go back. Yeah, I think that's the main reason why um, I've still not gone back into industry. One, when I finished the PhD, there was this, uh, you know, a few, there, there's this perception that, oh, PhD, construction, no, you're too qualified. Then once you get stuck in, I started enjoying it, of the travel involved. Because if I try to quantify um, the amount of travel, if not the COVID, like a typical year, I could visit like six countries in a year, and most of it, I won't pay a penny. So if I kind of, quantify that, you know, in terms of economic benefit, that would be a more than 10K, you know, 10 grand pay on top of whatever I'm earning. Mm-hmm. So that's how I see that, okay, I get that flexibility. Again, you are always working as academic. So don't think that, you know, because you have long vacation, you don't do anything. You are always on the laptop working. But the flexibility is that you don't have to do the typical nine to five. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At the moment, you know, at least I, I I will struggle nine to five job. That's the only thing. Yeah, yeah. So you have your freedom to choose when to work and when not to work. If I decide to sit down all night and work and sleep in the morning, as long as my work is done, that's all that matters. Yeah, and I think also, um, do you want to tell the audience briefly about that example of when, because of your position, you were able to help another black man who was just about to finish his PhD but because of the perception of his PhD, he could have potentially failed and how, because of your position, you were able to help. Which story is that? Uh, the guy with the Viva, who was not- Oh yeah, it wasn't a, it wasn't a PhD. It wasn't a okay, PhD. Okay, I was a master's. Yeah, um, was even the undergrad, but we used to, we do Viva. I, don't, I won't mention the universities because this is still yeah. recorded. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so, yes, yes, I was just okay. So in one of the universities I work with, there was that black guy, um, and we went for the viva and the, the, the routine or the procedure is that you read the dissertation, mark the dissertation, then that's out of 80, then we mark the viva out of 20. So as the two markers, we meet at the morning on the viva in the room, we have to agree the marks for the dissertation itself out of 80 before we even we start with the viva. So I spoke to the person involved and said, okay, what marks? I think we all agree I, I was around, even the lowest around 58 or something. And this person, okay, I give, I think 62, 63. And the regulation required, un- unless there's a gap of more than 10, we just come to the middle ground. So if we are marked 40 and one person marked 50, we just do 45, that's the regulation. Then this person came in, the student came in, then the, uh, after you know the Q&A, you know, he did a presentation, the person said, okay, I think I have to change my mind and fail him. I said, why? You said you've already awarded a max of X, you know, uh, or 60 something or whatever. So why are you changing? Oh, he's not serious. He's a bit rude. And I said, you know what? We are not here to mark character. If he had a good, a bad experience with this person, that's totally different. Um, and this person was the student supervisor. So they may have had some kind of encounter that I don't know. But my role as academic there, is to mark the academic work, not to mark character. I'm not dead, I'm not a pastor. So I felt, no, that's not right. We can't fail somebody because you think he's rude or he's not serious or whatever. Based on the presentation you've done and the work that you've already said, 
you've marked out of 60 or whatever over 80. We, we've already agreed and that's what I'm sticking to. If you don't agree with that, then I'll write my report as it says and we can take it to wherever I need to go. So eventually she has to kind of toe down a bit and say, okay, I mean, the marks were slightly lower than even that we expected, but for the fact that she decided she's not going to fill the student again was, I was happy that at least I didn't allow that to happen. And that's a common practice. Instead of people looking at our academic records, they are looking at our behavior. Not that even the behavior is bad, but they don't understand how we come out as people of color. So they think that, okay, maybe you, you look aggressive. And I've had even instances like that in a meeting, when you are chairing a meeting and you're trying to be firm, they think that, oh, why, why are you too aggressive? And if you don't do that too, they don't take, they won't listen because they think that um, they can take you for a ride. So these are some of the issues that you meet. Um, and, and I always stand up for people if I've, I've got a right to do so. And I think, I think that's also another key thing is if we don't have um, enough black or even uh, yeah, black men or females in these positions, when these decisions are, when these marginal decisions and sometimes unfounded decisions are being made, we have no one to advocate for us. Exactly. Because so, if, if it was, sorry, if it was another colleague, they would have just failed him for nothing. Exactly. Based so, on character, not on academic grounds. So, so for those of you looking at academia and looking at the kind of these roles and these places that maybe we are in the minority, actually, by us being there, we're not just a minority, but we're actually gatekeepers to make sure that if there is these kind of situations, we can speak out to it because we are in those industries and can be respected on the academic or on the position that we have. And I think it's, I think that's really, really important because ultimately if Alex wasn't there, we don't know what happened. And I think it's also for us to, yeah, he would have failed. And that's kind of three years of, of work. So I think it's really, 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 really important. And I think it's, so sometimes we look at position, we look at money, but I think influence is more important than money, you know? And I think, what Alex is doing and what he's been doing for 15 years is giving opportunities to other young people on his course. And I think um, I, I'm delighted that he's been able to share his journey from Ghana to London. And Richard, like, you know, the last comment is that somebody gave me the opportunity. I talked about when I was College of Northeast London, I met this lecturer called Drusilla Cole, who was a female. And she gave me the opportunity because um, someone would have been strict on bringing my overseas qualification into, you know. So she gave me that opportunity and I feel not that I'll bend the rules, but where there's, I have to be just and fair in terms of making decisions um, when it comes to admissions. And, you know, I see people with, of color and they've got the genuine uh, qualifications and there's opportunity. I always do my best to make sure that they also have equal opportunities like every other one else there. So I think I think that's also great in terms of helping our community and also supporting because I think it's the I know it does happen but I think there's a narrative around we fight with each other because there's only one Alex and <laughs> you don't want to be there can't be an Alex and Femi in the same department but actually no, one... Sometimes I wish that there's more of me in my department because currently I'm the only one there and sometimes it's just uncomfortable. You go to staff common a meeting and when you start talking, everybody look at you, you as if, you know, you can even put pressure on you. <laughs> you, you, and you don't have anyone else who looks like you 
that can motivate you and give you that strength that, okay, yes, get on, man. And yeah. as soon as you start saying something and everybody else turn at you as the only person, that alone is daunting. So for me, I feel we need more of us wherever we are. And people give me the chance and I always feel I, I just deserve the same opportunities. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I, think, I, think, I, think, that's, I think that's brilliant. Does anyone have any questions before I ask another question? So I have to give other people a chance. No, anyone have a question? So yeah, no, I, so I just wanted to um, leave it there because we've now reached 7.30. Thank you so much for giving us an hour of your time. Thank you for sharing your journey with us. I think the journey is so inspirational and I think your humble approach is just, is, is just in, it, it kind of inspires other people to say, regardless of what, I love that quote, no matter how hard you work, there's someone working even harder. And I think it's, it stops you from being arrogant. It stops you from being lazy. It makes sure that you work as hard as possible. But I think Paul said, it's by, I worked harder than everyone else, but by the grace of God. So I think it's the grace of God that gives us the ability to even work hard. Yeah. Some people burn out. <laughs> Some people can't handle it. Some people drop out, as you as you notice, you're the only one out of 20. Um, it's, it's an amazing, amazing journey. And we thank God that, God is still using you in so many positions. We thank God for the false refugees who now have an advocate, who someone who understands. And it's not just someone who um, is just saying, yes, oh, yes, we, we, we're delighted to have you at UCL, but someone who knows the journey, someone who understands. Um, so without further ado, I just want to say thank you once again. It's been a, it's been a, I, I'm, I, I'm sure I speak for lots of other people. I think we have some comments in the, let me just read some of the comments to you. Thank you. Amazing story, Alex. Yes. We have another story saying, um, Dr. Apoku, thank you for sharing your journey. I'm thoroughly inspired. There's so much being me, young people, and provision that can take from this. So thank you for being inspiring even now. Oh, we, have, we have another one. Thank you for sharing. Really inspiring from Anna. We, it, it, it's, it's, it's really, really good when we share success stories and we share the journey. Because I think sometimes, you know, you hear someone who's successful and they say, don't worry, my brother, everyone is, everyone is possible. But you don't really know the journey. Yeah. And I think, like you said, I I, my friend Ade is on the, on, on, in, on the call and he says it to me. And I think it's, it's, it's a great reminder that, you know, I call him the Alaji. So Alaji in Africa, in Nigerian culture is like the, someone who's really, really, really um, intelligent um, and wise. But it's like you said, the money will come. The, it's the journey. And I think sometimes in, in, our, in, our, in our rush to be successful, in our rush to have the position, in our rush to have all of these things that we think we need, we miss yeah. out on the process. And, and maybe just the last one, talking about yeah. the money will come. You need experience, especially if you're in UK, it's not about just qualifications. So when I was starting and I took that job as a trainee, the money was only just to enable me for, to pay for my transport and the best. It wasn't even a salary. It was just like allowance. But I took it because I needed that experience. Mm -hmm. So whenever I meet a lot of people, um, yes, they may have different, um, should I say, financial needs and family pressures and everything. But at that time, I remember very well that there were pressures from friends and colleagues who thinks that, why are you doing this job? You could go and do security and in higher than that. But I realized that if I go into doing a security and getting more money, 
whilst my qualification is lying down because I don't have the experience, I'd rather take a small money, work even if you have to work for free, work for free, even if it's voluntary, and get the experience on your CV. Once you've got the experience, you can just then demand for proper pay. Because after that, I was able to negotiate uh, pay and salary and move up. So always, there's the need to do the initial sacrifice to get the experience you require, even if you have to do on voluntary. Yeah, I, 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 think that, I think that's, I think that's, oh, one more question. We have one more question. One more question. One last minute question. Is that okay, Alex? Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. one more question. Um, go ahead. Sorry, one, one more question, I think. Whilst that question's uh, oh, this is a very interesting question. The question is, Dr. Opoku, do you think it was worth it? Which one is worth it? The whole journey? Yeah, yeah. Definitely. That's Definitely. a short answer. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, I think I think your whole I think that's the thing. Like, it's not just your success journey now. That you're enjoying but the whole journey like you said from your from your village in ghana to That's now saying that um the whole experience you know whether it was god's plan that's how i put it because i keep asking myself that i didn't like going to technical secondary school and i had an issue even with my dad for forcing me to go and do technical but when <laughs> i look back now i look at it myself Maybe if I would I'd have done business or whatever, I wouldn't have had these opportunities when I was in the UK because there was less competition in up till now, there's less competition in construction. So I still double up, you know, apart from talking to you, I do go to secondary schools and go and talk about career opportunities in construction as a construction industry ambassador. So that's something I do voluntarily. Because my aim is that there's a lot of people who don't know the opportunities in construction. So they all exactly. go and do businesses and other courses that they, they just cramped up with a, a starting pay of 20 and you could end up 30. Where if you are working in the construction industry after graduation, their starting salary is higher than most of the other degrees. So for me, even though I didn't like doing technical secondary and like I said, I was forced to do it, I felt perfect route and the perfect career for me i don't think i could have done or i could do anything better than what i'm doing now and i think i think it's a reminder to i think it's a reminder of that scripture because sometimes we hear scripture in isolation but when we see it in someone's life it kind of brings it to life so it kind of says our steps are ordered from the lord you know paul didn't say i want to now become an apostle and i want to write half of the uh, new testament so i think sometimes we have to trust the journey and know that God is ordering our steps, even when it doesn't make sense. And I guess like, you know, Proverbs says, you know, <laughs> lean not on your own understanding. <laughs> you know, you're, 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 you're just, you're just, you're just, you just stress yourself out. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, so we, um, so we have one, one more question, if that's okay with everybody. Would you go back to, would you go, would you, would you go back to your home country? Sorry, let me just quickly look at that question. Would you go back to your home country let me look at this question. Sorry. Would you would you go back to your home country, or is the law of the West too strong and comfortable? <laughs> <laughs> I think on that note, we'll take we'll take that question. We'll take that question, and then we'll close. I've always wanted to go back, but to be honest, there's always challenges going back home. So I feel yes, over 
I mean, sometimes even shy to talk about the number of years I've been in the UK. Because if you look at 2001 at, you know, HNC College, you could imagine by now it's like 20 years already. And it's my desire to always go back, but, you know, I need to understand that there are challenges in terms of um, going back home. But I feel my skills and experience will be relevant and will benefit um, back home more than even now what I'm doing here. So I'm working on it. I'm just waiting for the right opportunity. And um, yeah, I definitely will go back. I don't want to retire 60 here. It's been too long of a journey. <laughs> I'm just waiting for something, um, the right opportunity. And definitely I'll move back home. Okay, brilliant. So on that note, I want to thank everyone, all everyone who's joined. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your questions. And last but not least, thank you to Alex for, for, for sharing his experience with us. If you um, want to find out more, we, we will be doing the next, the next talk will be from a professor um, in business management who will be looking at black contributions to management. And he's, he, he's, he's really a trailblazer at the moment. He's a Caribbean um, academic from Atlanta. So join us on the 4th of January, 2021. Until then, I want to wish you all a Merry Christmas, a safe Christmas, and I hope look forward to seeing you on the next one on the 4th of January, 2021. Thank you all for joining us. For those of you who would like the recording, can you please send me an email at richard at eastlandandconnect.org. Richard at eastlandandconnect.org. I'll write it in the chat um, for everyone to see. Yep, in meeting, sorry. Richard. And so everyone will have access to that. So thank you very much, everyone. Um, have a great weekend and hopefully see you at the next one. Thank you very much, Alex. All right, thank you, Richard. Thanks for the opportunity and thanks everyone. Um, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.